An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest Barbara Brooks Kimmel, the co-founder and CEO of Trust Across America, Trust Around the World, a leading consultancy focused on helping leaders and teams build trust. A former McKinsey consultant, Barbara has developed a host of tools designed to not only build trust, but also to measure it so investors can profit from investing in the most trustworthy companies. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Barbara. I've been fascinated by and written about trust for decades, so I relish the opportunity to discuss it with an expert. Barbara's work on trust has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Investors Business Daily, Thomson Reuters, BBC Radio, the Conference Board, Global Finance Magazine, Bank Director, and Forbes. Welcome, Barbara. John, thank you for having me today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? What led you to specializing in trust of all things? Somehow, I don't see you, or to be honest, anyone, telling their second grade teacher, I want to be an expert on trust when I grow up. What made you focus on it? And how did you become the person you are, both professionally and personally? First of all, I don't think it was my second grade teacher. It may have been my kindergarten teacher. But in all honesty, I did not set out to do this work. Uh, it wasn't something I always dreamed of. I graduated from Fiat College of Pennsylvania with a degree in international affairs. And I thought I was headed to Washington, D.C. to work as a legislative aide when I graduated. And two weeks before graduation, the uh, congressman who I was supposed to work for his budget was cut. And I found myself without a job getting out of college. My first thought was to um, go back and become a bartender for the summer, which is what I had done my, during my senior year of college and actually found it to be a lot of fun until my father, who was at that time a principal of a school, said to me, no, I don't think so. You're not going to go to the Jersey Shore and work as a bartender. You have to come home and get a job. So I answered an ad for a job in the New York Times. That was when there were actually classified ads. And I wound up working, taking a job with a very specialized consulting firm in New York. I spent quite a bit of time there. I was going to graduate school at night to get an MBA. And uh, the reason I spent the time there was not because it was a great cultural fit for me, but because I met clients who were from some of the most interesting companies. I worked with a number of Fortune 500 companies, including McKinsey, which was a client at the time, but also um, companies like Philip Morris, Goldman Sachs, across a whole variety of different industries. And I got to know their senior leadership very, very well because that's who I was actually consulting to. At the time, I really didn't understand how much culture played a role 
in the way companies operated. And, and again, my limited knowledge back then was very interesting to compare companies like Philip Morris, for example, who I got to know the CEO at the time very well. They were, the employees loved working there. The CEO was as personal, personable as you could possibly imagine compared to other companies where I would walk in the door and, and, feed, and get a very different vibe. Now, again, I'm, I'm only telling you this because I had no idea that this would play a role in who I became later on and, the, and my work in trust, but it definitely set somewhat of a foundation for me. And so when I graduated from business school, I decided to leave the corporate world and start my own company. And interestingly, the uh, mission of that company was to simplify complex subjects. And I spent several years primarily uh, publishing nonfiction books in a variety of different topics with the hopes that by working with authors who were making complicated subjects more simple to understand, I would be providing a service to the public. And actually, it was actually a very fun transition for me. We did a number of award-winning publications, working primarily with academics, medical professionals, doctors, lawyers, and really put out some very, very high-quality books for about 10 years. And then along came, and so that's what I was kind of doing when the 2008 financial crisis hit. And the, the trust thing literally started with a conversation around the dinner table. And it was really about, could companies be trusted? And if we were watching CNBC or some of the financial news and a CEO would be on four o'clock on a Friday afternoon saying that the company was in good shape and solid and then declare bankruptcy over the weekend. And that was really the first discussion about trust. And that was back in 2008. And so never one to run from a challenge, I started researching the subject. And I found that there was just no central clearinghouse for information on trust. I didn't really even understand what it meant. And so I said, well, I'm going to start a website. I'm going to become a clearinghouse for the, for the subject. I'm going to start talking to people who have trust attached to their name on the internet. And I'm going to start reaching out to them and see what I can learn about this. And that's really how it started. So let's just, let's start with the basics. How do you define trust and why is it important in business and in investing? It's a very interesting question. And I think it's really one of the greatest challenges that we face, that those of us who do trust work face. And what I realized several years ago is that finding a definition for trust really wasn't the brass ring that people needed to try to grab. It was really describing what it was. And so I stopped trying to define it. And we'll get into this in another minute as to why I did. But what, what I like to do is really describe it. And for me, the evolution over 15 years has brought me to describing trust as the outcome of principled behavior. And again, John, that's interpersonal trust. That's not organizational trust. And that's really where a clear distinction has to be made. Because 
Interpersonal trust is very different from organizational trust. Even though the two are very often conflated, people do not stop to make that distinction. It's a great distinction. You want to delve into it a little more to explain how they differ? If we look at interpersonal trust and we view interpersonal trust as the outcome of principal behavior, and we put that alongside institutional trust, institutional trust is more about perceived confidence in an organization. It's really more about trustworthiness. It's not about interpersonal trust. How is this organization perceived by its stakeholders? What kind of relationships does it have with its employees, with its shareholders, with its suppliers, with the government, with the community? It's really more about trustworthiness and perception of trust as opposed to the interpersonal trust that takes place between people. Is that clear to you? Absolutely, but it it does beg a question. As you said, when you started, there was no central clearinghouse. You've even stopped worrying about the definition. I will tell you, I've written about trust. I, I wrote about trust in a 2016 book with, that I co-authored with David Pitt Watson and Stephen Davis. And economists believe that trust is a type of lubricant. So here's what I wrote then, quote, even those who don't enjoy their jobs, understand the implicit bargain with their employers, come to work on time, work hard, be honest, and try to add value. It is hugely to society's advantage that they do so because the transaction cost of contracting for every element of performance rather than simply trusting one another is very high. Trust is a central feature of any successful system. Well-justified trust keeps transaction costs low, yet questions about what constitutes trust and how it's promoted and maintained are largely absent, end quote. So why do you think that something that obviously both you and I think is so important is so unremarked upon in the academic and practitioner literature? If you look at trust from an organizational perspective, I think that, and and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think that business leaders and those that consult to business leaders, their main objective is to minimize risk, minimize enterprise risk. And I think that many of them make the false assumption that minimizing enterprise risk is equivalent to building trust. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I'm working on a project right now with Rick Funston, who was the former risk leader at Deloitte, about how companies, uh, how boards build trust around enterprise risk and performance management, because risk and performance are sort of two edges of the same coin. And one of the things that we've thought about is, you know, the old Russian proverb, which Ronald Reagan adopted in his dealings with the Soviet Union, which is trust, but verified. Mm -hmm. And yet we actually think the phrase should be verified and trust rather than the more familiar other way around, because you build trust as the result of repeated trust building actions. And the logical outcome of repeated verification is trust. And that sort of fits with your description earlier. So how can leaders 
engender trust, both internally and with stakeholders external. You've said trust is a top-down strategy. Right. What is, how, do, how does that top-down work? So let's get back to what we were discussing a minute ago. Yeah. So I think that organizations, what they're, what they're actually doing, and this goes back to the difference between interpersonal and institutional trust, is they are attempting, and, and, it, and it's good that they're doing this, to maximize institutional trustworthiness. But they're falling short on the interpersonal side of building trust internally. And so very often we'll see, and, and again, we'll get back to the, and I agree about the verify before trust, that it should be verify then trust, but just jumping back for a minute. So, so what we're left with, and I think that what we see today with employee engagement being is so low and doesn't seem to be improving and the whole remote work and must be in the office and all of these things that are making news are still showing a, a significant disinterest or, or, and I can't really say disinterest, but it may just be not knowing what to do on the interpersonal trust side to solve some of the internal problems that organizations are having that really do build they play a huge component in building organizational trustworthiness, yet those are the ones that seem to be primarily ignored because it is a function of leadership and it is not risk management. And so if business leaders do not, and I don't believe it's through any fault of their own, do not embrace the interpersonal nature of trust and fix what's broken in their own, organizations, it's very, very difficult to maximize organizational trustworthiness. In fact, it impedes it. So as you were talking, I was thinking about Elon Musk and Twitter and whether that is an example of deliberate destruction of both institutional trust and trustworthiness in an organization, or maybe non-deliberate. I don't think Mr. Musk went out to do that deliberately, but some of his actions seem to have engendered a lack of trust. Right. Is, is that an exemplar of what not to do? I think in some ways it is. And I think through no fault of his, he has no leadership training. And, and I think he has, you know, a kind of an unusual abrasive personality. And so I think he's a genius. I think he's a very unique individual, but I think his lack of leadership training and kind of a shoot from the hip mentality, which he's done in building Tesla and other organizations, has contributed a lot to the problems, but not completely at Twitter. I think, of course, there's a huge politicized issue at Twitter, or I should say political issue, and, uh, and that's not helping things. We all, I think, if you're, unless you're a sociopath, you want to be liked, and interpersonal trust clearly helps in being liked, but from a business and building trustworthiness of business, is there evidence that trust helps create value and or decreases enterprise risk and loss? You can go to academic studies and kind of dig into them a little bit. In, in my own experience over the last 15 years, I think there's very little evidence, very little evidence that trust itself creates value. However, I don't think that anyone would argue 
that there's a certain commonsensical issue here. And you know as well as I do that if you do not display characteristics of trust, if you're not competent, if you don't have good character, if you're not consistent in your actions and what you say, regardless of what the relationship is, whether it's within business or with your spouse, your children, your, you know, your colleagues, the lower that is, the, the worse that is, the worse the outcome is going to be. So if, if you have those things and you display them const- consistently, then, you know, the speed of trust, as Stephen Covey likes to say, is going to increase. If they're absent, it's going to take longer to get to the end, to the goal. It's interesting because I honestly expect you to say, yes, there's all sorts of evidence that trustworthiness in public companies Okay. Is- so now let's talk about trustworthiness of public companies and put the trust, the interpersonal trust evidence aside. There's lots of, lots of evidence that trustworthiness improves outcomes. And that's organizational trustworthiness. Going back to the right side of the page of organizational trustworthiness. So if companies deliberately do certain things, and, and again, John, it really, like my husband likes to say, it really boils down to quality. No company, just like no person is, no company is perfect. But if they make certain efforts to become more trustworthy in the eyes of their stakeholders, the quality of the company is just perceived as better and they're going to do better. And so, yes, we've been building a business case for this for almost 15 years. In fact, I think you've developed a system to measure the trustworthiness of public companies. Tell me how an investor can use that in investing. Sure. So this framework that we built, we started constructing in 2010 with the goal of creating a way to rank and measure the trustworthiness of public companies. And, what, and the way we did that is we actually sat down uh, with a number of professionals from a variety of disciplines, really kind of to educate ourselves about what they perceive to be components of organizational trustworthiness. And so we heard from auditors, we heard from financial professionals, we heard from leadership, we heard from auditing sustainability professionals, CSR at the time. I mean, and, and we, and, and, and we started kind of just piecing together this framework and what we finally arrived at, it took us about two and a half years to, to come up with a framework that made sense to everyone was this five factor framework that we call facts. And essentially what it does is it equally weights five indicators of trustworthy business behavior. And they are financial stability, accounting conservativeness, corporate governance, transparency, and sustainability. And again, they're equally weighted. We don't negative screen. And we take this information and using data that we are able to assemble for public companies through public information, publicly available data. We combine the scores into what we call our facts rankings. And we've been ranking companies like this for over 10 years. Companies don't participate. It's not survey-based. It's all external. They don't know they're being evaluated. So when we first put the framework together and we started approaching financial institutions about it, they said, come back to us in 10 years when you've proven the business case. 
And so that's what we did. We waited 10 years. And every year we put together our data and every year we were building the case and every year we compared the outcome to benchmarks until we got to 10 years and then we created an index. And the index clearly showed, and you've seen that, the proof that the most trustworthy companies actually did outperform. The problem problem is, is nobody really understands what we mean. And so the first question that comes up is, so this is an ESG product? No, it's not an ESG product. Does it have ESG components to it? Absolutely. But an ESG purist, and I've had these conversations with some of your colleagues, is not going to be able to understand how a company like Exxon might make our index. It's just not something that they can wrap their arms around. So, so when you ask how, you know, how it works in the investment community, uh, right now what we're doing is we're working with a number of different RIAs. They can uh, use our methodology. They can use our data. Some of them want our data. They pick and choose companies out of the index. And that's okay, too, as long as they understand that the performance may not be the same. So what I like about it is, is obviously your higher rank companies have outperformed and it's not a back test. It's a real time, you know, as you say, going for 10 years test. Right. Um, I'm surprised someone hasn't developed an ETF out of it yet. So are we. And I can, and I can discuss that in more detail with you at another time. It, there were, there were a few attempts. It's a, it's, it's a hard elevator pitch. Okay. So to get back to the value creation in the real world, you mentioned companies don't have to be perfect to become trustworthy. They just have to continuously attend. So sometimes leaders, including CEOs do make mistakes. Mm -hmm. What can you do to try and repair that loss of trust or loss of trustworthiness that may have occurred? from the mistake quickly. How, how do you, how do you deal with it? We've all seen bad attempts, for instance, the celebrities who will apologize with, if I offended somebody mm-hmm. type of apology, which everyone just cringes at what, what can a leader do to recover from a mistake? It's all contingent on how much trust had been banked in advance. And again, everyone comes back to the same example of Johnson and Johnson and Tylenol. Uh, it was a company that had banked a whole lot of trust. And so when the Tylenol scandal occurred, it was not that difficult to recover from. In most cases, unfortunately, uh, business leaders do not think about trust until there's a crisis. And then it's really not about repairing trust. It's about repairing reputation. And so they're counseled as to what to say, how to appear before the public, never to apologize, because apologizing opens up all kinds of legal issues. Then they've admitted that they did something wrong. So it becomes a a, a pure reputation play. And what's broken is never fixed. And we see that over and over again in financial services. We're seeing it right now. Interesting distinction that... um... I had not thought about before, so thank you for giving me my aha moment of this podcast. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? I'm working right now on a new project. It's a kind of a 10-year retrospective on, and this is professionally what I'm passionate about, 
a 10-year retrospective on what's changed since our original book was written almost 10 years ago. And so I'm reaching out to a number of people who I've gotten to know over the past 10 years, some participated in our early publications, and asking them to, um, to, per to participate in this kind of 10-year retrospective and bring together a whole bunch of new essays on the subject to see again if we can kind of reignite an interest in, you know, in, 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 a, in a positive direction on trust. So, so I'm working on that, and that's pretty exciting. Um, but more exciting to me is some of the personal things that, that I look forward to at this time of the year, especially getting my garden going. Uh, I love to garden, you know, the crocuses and the daffodils are coming up. And so that's exciting me too. A good Jersey tomato, you can't beat it. That is for sure. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax aside from gardening? Uh, so uh, I'm very fortunate to be married to a man who loves to eat. And I love to cook. So one of the ways that I relax at the end of the day is cooking. And uh, I also live in a beautiful neighborhood with an association where the common grounds were kept very nice. We have five and a half miles of walking capability here. And so I love to get out and walk when the weather's nice. Any particular specialties in cooking? You know, it's funny because I think um, I like to laugh. My favorite thing to eat is Italian food. And so I, I love to laugh with my family that at some point there must be some Italian ancestry because uh, I just love to cook Italian food. But, but I, I cook almost everything. And to me, it's more about the experimentation and the art of cooking than anything else. Good ingredients, that's all you need. What type of music do you listen to? So I listen to all kinds of music. I like to sing a lot. And so uh, I, I'm not really partial to any particular genre, per se. I mean, right now, I'm crazy about Harry Styles and love to sing his along with him on the radio. You know, in the summer, I love to have my reggae music going outside by the pool. What are you reading right now? Professionally, I'm going back and rereading the books that I published on Trust so that I can kind of work on this, you know, get this project off the ground for the summer. And uh, personally, I just finished a book, and I don't know if you know this author. He's a Swedish author named Frederick Bachman. The book that he's most well-known for is A Man Called Ove. Uh, I just finished one of his books. It's an old one called Brit Marie Was Here. Funny book. So I, I tend to read more for enjoyment when it comes to reading books because I read so much professionally during the day. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? So again, it would depend on the weather. My two favorite places are St. John's in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which I've been to many times, and Barcelona. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would it be? So I actually am going, I'm going to tell you something that I've borrowed from one of my kids. It's on his website. and. That is work hard, be kind. Good advice. We're so grateful to you, Barbara Brooks Kimmel, for usurping your no podcast rule to, to, to make this an exception. You've been listening to Downside in with John McCormick with our special guest, Barbara Brooks Kimmel. And Barbara, thanks so much. Thank you for having me, John. It was fun. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John McCormick, the interdisciplinary podcast. 
for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.